Hey, Jack Farley here, host of the Forward Guidance Podcast. Mike is out this week, so I'm filling in. Here's a conversation I had with Alfonso Pecatiello of the Macro Compass. Links to Forward Guidance will be in the description. Thanks and enjoy. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Alfonso Pecatiello, founder of the Macro Compass. Alf, great to have you back. How have you been? Hey, Jack, I'm good. And you? Long time no see. Alf, how would you characterize the first six months of 2023? Uh, Waiting for Godot. That's uh, how I would characterize the first six months. Godot, namely in the recession that didn't show up, uh, caught me wrong. It was my base case that we would see some recessionary forces prevail in the first half of the year. Uh, About June was my forecast. We aren't there, Jack. Um, Truth to be said, there is nothing red hot about the economy as we speak. If I use the seven sub-indicators that the NBER is using to characterize whether the US is in a recession or not, and the NBER doesn't look at two consecutive quarters of GDP growth, but it uses a broad range of seven indicators, those seven indicators are annualizing at about 1% growth as we speak. Real or nominal? Real. This is real. So real growth at about 1% annualized is not consistent with the recession. It's below trend growth, which makes sense after such a monetary tightening. And um, I think what's surprising for many people is the lags. The monetary lags are playing out to be much longer, um, or at least they're playing out to be, I think, in line with historical standards in many cases. But people expect that because of the viciousness in the hiking cycle, you would have had shorter time lags between the tightening and the weakness in markets and in the economy. And, and instead, it seems like it's taking the normal time. And when, I'm, when I say normal time, I look at history. And if I take the yield curve inversion between two-year and 10-year as one key signal, that monetary policy has been tightened by the Fed and therefore the curve is inverted. If you look at history, an inversion between the two-year and 10-year of the yield curve generally takes between 13 and 21 months to play into recessionary-like forces in the real economy. So the, the yield curve has inverted. Whether you look at the overnight index swaps or the treasury curve, roughly in May, June 2022, and it has remained relentlessly inverted ever since. So we are now in month 13 of the yield curve inversion. So we are just at the very early side of when the lags could kick in. They could kick in according to history right about now, or it could take another eight to nine months until you see more recessionary forces prevail. And definitely we haven't been on the shorter side in this cycle. One reason I think it got was confusing was because as the Federal Reserve was hiking, inflation was very high. The price of oil was very high, $120. And that caused a considerable slowdown in the economy. You know, the consumer sentiment was you know, in, the, in, the, in the tank. And uh, cons- real consumer spending went down purely because in- inflation was so high. A real is inflation adjusted. And then since October, as inflation has gone down, as the price of natural gas and oil has gone down, the, we've had the re- reversal. We've had a you know, not a, a boom time, but coming out of a mid-cycle slowdown. And, and we, we, I think, maybe perhaps uh, misinterpreted that slowdown uh, of last year as 
rate hike due to rate hikes when actually it was due to inflation itself was crimping yeah. demand, not to a recession level, but to you know a slowdown. And now we've had the opposite, which has been very good for the economy over the past nine months. That is correct. I think the other thing that many underestimated is that one of the main forces through which monetary tightening plays into uh, real economy weakening is the credit channel. So you need to tighten credit conditions for the private sector. And by tightening credit conditions for the private sector, you'll see people getting on less mortgages, companies borrowing less, and therefore slowing down their earnings, slowing down their spending, and maybe even having to cut labor at some point to protect their margins. Now, the difference with this cycle is that in 2020, 2021, there was a massive credit bonanza going on where, I mean, the most famous reference is that households locked in 30-year mortgages at 3%, right? And that's one thing people are looking at and they say, yeah, well, then nobody needs to, uh, will refinance. Nobody will sell unless they're forced to because they locked such a great long-term financing rate. The other example I can bring is corporates. The average duration of corporate bond issuance in 2020-2021 skyrocketed from six years to nine years, 10 years. And why is that, Jack? It's because companies saw the opportunity of locking in long-term funding and very cheap levels. So once you do that, the refinancing needs, the immediate need to refinance again in 2022 or in 2023 is obviously much less. The so-called refinancing wall doesn't really hit you and you can kick the can down the road that even if corporate bond deals are higher because the Fed is you know, increasing risk-free rates and maybe credit spreads have widened a little bit, you don't really feel the immediate pressure, do you? It's the same for mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are at 7%, sure, but if the bulk of people have locked in mortgage rates at 3%, it's only for the residual marginal new buyer that this becomes restraining. And the same for corporates. As long as corporates are not forced to refinance and they've lengthened the duration of their liabilities, the lags can take longer effectively, Jack, because you can kick the can down the road for longer. Again, I think we have gone through the period where the easy win of lags being longer in this cycle is behind us. Now we are in a period where it's more likely, historically speaking, that these lags could kick in going forward. So we are in the period 13 months plus looking at yield curve inversion, which generally becomes a bit more dangerous. Against this backdrop, I would like to, to quote one sentence from Draghi in the Sintra 2017, I think. Back then he said, if we keep monetary policy still easy, back then the, Federal, the ECB was at negative interest rates, if we keep monetary policy easy while growth is picking up, we are easing on top of this. And the idea there is that you need to measure a monetary policy stance against cyclical growth in the economy. And now we discussed that cyclical growth has slowed down to about 1% annualized rates. But in the meantime, the Fed is trying to make their best to keep policy tight throughout this slowdown in economic growth. So even if the Fed doesn't raise rates massively anymore, keeping rates tighter for longer, quoting the Fed, effectively continues to exert a net tightening pressure on the economy if growth comes down. It's like seeing a basically a car rapidly slowing down already and then hitting on the brake a bit further 
effectively increases the risk that the car completely stops. That summed up with the length of tightening, I think are a couple of, of things to keep in mind if you're an investor right now. If we were to put up a chart showing the length of financing for corporates as well, investment grade, high yield, and, and of course the mortgages, people borrowed at a duration and maturity of a long time. So they won't have to pay back these loans. They, they locked in interest rates at you know, 3 4% when the risk-free was at 0%. And if they had to refinance now, they'd have to borrow at 8 or 9%, but they don't. They have until 2024 or 2025, really, you know, on that, that chart uh, on the right. So why do you think that it won't be until 2025? Why do you think that the recession will be what, late 2023 or early 2024? You, you tell me when you think the, you know, the car, if we we're going to slam on the brakes, is, is really going to hit the brick wall. So look, um, the reason why I don't think that you can look at this as a point in time exercise and uh, look at the maturity wall of high yield and investment grade and say, hey, it's only in 2025 that I see the maturities and therefore it's 2025 when the problem will arise is that I've worked for a treasury of a large bank for a long period of time. So when it comes to your issuance planning, to your asset and liability planning, you want to avoid uh, refinancing cliffs. You don't want to go to the market and refinance your entire liability needs right at the point when they mature because you don't know what kind of prevailing interest rates and funding conditions you will find exactly at that time. So you tend to scatter this funding around, Jack, basically over time. Even if you don't need the money right now, you'll try to basically barbell your funding strategy over time. It's a more prudent risk management approach. Now, if you're in 2023 and your true refinancing need are in 2025, let's say, then you have two years, which means if, as you said, high yield are 9%, well, you're going to just take a bit of risk and completely miss your refinancing window. You won't add anything right now and you will wait. You will wait and you will hope that high yield rates are 7% by next quarter and you will start refinancing by then. It's easier to do that when you have two years to go until your actual refinancing need. It's more complicated when it becomes one and a half years. It gets definitely more risky as a strategy if you have six months to go until your actual refinancing need. So effectively, what I'm saying is that slowly but surely, the longer conditions remain tight, the more private sector agents will be called in the refinancing need. Maybe not all of a sudden, but slowly and gradually, they will be forced to accept that the, the tighter financing conditions exists. It's a bit like, think of the UK and the mortgage uh, situation over there or Canada. So in the UK, we'll have, we, we now have a lot of um, previously fixed rate mortgages that were two, three, five years in tenor that are coming uh, due, right? And so refinancing are there. But obviously it's not the entire UK population that needs to refinance right now. There will be some people that have the refinancing somewhere at the end of this year. Some people, they have it early next year. So effectively, tighter conditions will, over time, hit a broader proportion of the private sector. And if until now, many people were immune on it because they could kick the can down the road, kicking the can down the road becomes more complicated as time goes by. That's my point, basically. So the effect of tighter conditions over time tend to play through a broader proportion of the private sector which makes credit effectively tight, not only theoretically tight, but effectively tight for a broader proportion of the credit of the private sector. And that means policy becomes tighter, effectively tighter, on the ground tighter. 
what have you made of its impact on the banking system in the U.S.? You know, large corporations borrow mostly in the bond market, not banks, but small and medium-sized businesses. You know, a lot of that activity is still in the banks. I haven't looked that closely at the credit aggregates. I've been looking more closely, I guess, at individual banks. Um, but it doesn't appear that credit has contracted, you know, nearly as much as uh, you know the the, the doomsayers were saying in in, in March, at least. So look, um, first of all, you are right that bank credit in the US is not the only thing to look at, Jack, because bank credit as a proportion of total credit generated in the US to the private sector is about 40%. So it's not small, it's a significant portion, but there is 60% to go, which is explained by other forms of credit providing like shadow banking, for example, or capital markets. Capital markets in the US are huge for the credit market. So a lot of credit creation happens there. But if you get everything together and you try to look at the pace of and, and the tightness or easiness of credit generation for the private sector, I have an index that I track and I build and it's called the Credit Impulse. It tries to do exactly that. It basically measures how much real economy money, how much credit money we are giving to the private sector. Um, and it does, it looks at that on a rate of change basis and it looks at that in real terms. So it's effectively real money being thrown at the private sector on a rate of change basis. Well, in the US, it doesn't look particularly good, but that, that's the same for the UK and for Europe, for example. Reason is pretty simple. Mortgage generation, which is one big lever of credit creation for the private sector and for households has clearly slowed down. There are not so many people that are very happy to take on mortgages at 7% rates. And the same goes for corporates, right? I mean, triple B corporate yields are about 6%, 10-year triple B corporate yields. They are 100 basis points higher than the period between 2015 and 2019. So let's say before pandemic. So also for corporates, it's tougher to get access to cheap credit. Not talk about auto financing or credit card rates. Every kind of borrowing rate for the private sector is higher, which means the appetite to take on credit from the private sector is lower. This is reflected in these indices. Again, the problem is lags. How long does it take until a starvation of credit for the private sector or a potential one plays into the real economy? Well, if you have, if you are, if you have gone through an indigestion of cheap credit in 2020, 2021, it can take a bit longer. The mistake to avoid is to assume that this time is different. Those are the four pretty expensive words in finance where we're going to say, well, credit doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter that credit is tight. It doesn't matter that mortgage rates at 7% for whatever, nine months in a row. It doesn't matter until it matters. So one of the things I see happening right now is that people confuse stock market euphoria and bullishness, which is fine because we're all investors and we need to respect it and understand that. But people confuse that with monetary policy lags, with how the economy works, how our monetary system works. And that's, I think, a potential mistake. So there's two things. One is the price of credit, which you know, objectively, inarguably, is, is much, much higher. The second is the availability of credit. I still think, isn't it true that in the U.S. at least, a lot of companies you know, can get financing? I think the percentage of companies that you know, are saying that financing is now an issue, it's maybe 3%, and that's up from zero 
from 3%, but it's, it's, it's at 3%. And also tell us what did your uh, credit impulse do in 2022 and what is it doing now? Has it bottomed? Did it bottom? Uh, and also, because I imagine maybe it includes the bond market as well, capital markets activity, because actual bank lending in the US uh, was extremely high, uh, the highest mm -hmm. ever. That is correct. So the reason why you should only look at bank lending is that banks tend to lend very aggressively late cycle. Very they true. tend to do that for two reasons. Late cycle, yields are very high, generally speaking, which means that loan yields are very attractive and banks are there to make money, Jack. So the higher the loan yield, the more likely a bank is to lend. Late cycle, fundamentals tend to look pretty well. It's not the news that unemployment rate is generally the lowest just before historically a recession hits. So banks are looking at great loan yields, good potential return on equity on these loans they make against fundamentals that late cycle are looking pretty good. And so it's not really a news that bank lending very late in the cycle tends to look pretty robust. So it's bank lending to be looked at also through the lenses of credit flows to the private sector that are maybe due to um, capital markets or shadow banking. You need to look at the aggregate of it. So the credit impulse in 2022, it started declining pretty aggressively. Remember, it works as a leading indicator and, lags, and the lead and lag time can be pretty long, sometimes 12, 15, 18 months, depending uh, on history. And it has kept declining until the first quarter of 2023 to levels that are pretty low, to be honest. Remember, it's measured in real terms. So it's inflation adjusted, which, okay. makes, it, which makes it more negative as inflation has been pretty high. It tries to measure at the real inflation adjusted credit creation for the private sector. So it looks at how much the private sector can use credit to boost their real consumption. Okay. In the second quarter of 2023, we start to see some stabilization. So if I look at the same... Um, indicator on a three-month or a six-month rate of change annualized, it looks less worse. So we have stabilized, but at pretty low levels. And so that impulse, is it, it's, is it a rate of, rate of change terms? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense. So in 2022, it was comparing it to 2021, 2021. when we had pretty much the biggest fixed income bubble <laughs> ever. So in 2021, uh, actually in Q4 2020, the credit impulse was the highest in 20 years. And not a surprise, why? Because credit was cheap like hell, because the government with fiscal transfer, which are also calculated in the credit impulse because fiscal deficits inject money in the private sector. When the government sent you check at homes, checks, they, uh, checks at your home, Jack, they didn't ask for anything back. They literally injected money in your bank account. And they said, hey, Jack, here is some more spendable money for you straight away, real economy money that you can throw at services and goods at everything. And I'm not going to ask you for anything back. There is no liability, immediate liability attached to that. So fiscal deficits, fiscal transfers are a form of increasing the amount of spendable money for the private sector. And so in 2020, we had a ballistic amount of fiscal transfers. And monetary. Yeah. And we had monetary, which is not calculated in the credit impulse because that's money for banks. But money for us, for corporates, for households, it was increasing very rapidly because the government was boosting our bank accounts through fiscal transfers, right? And because credit was cheap like hell. 
And in some cases, the government was also guaranteeing potential credit losses on loans. So banks basically had a free lunch. They were told, lend money, create new credit. And capital markets were wide open in 2021, as you said. So the credit impulse registered a massive increase at the end of 2020. Not a surprise, nine to 12 months later, earnings per share followed. And the, the S&P re recorded, I think, a 40, 50% year-on-year increase in earnings per share in 2021. A bit later, as normally in the cycle, inflation starts to pick up as well. That was then helped by the war and supply bottlenecks. But the credit impulse started dropping somewhere mid, uh, sorry, end of 2021, beginning of 2022. And since then, on a year-on-year -year basis, on a rate of change basis, it has come down really, really aggressively. Now, obviously, the lags, again, as we said, can be longer in this cycle because the credit bonanza of 2020-2021 has been absolutely massive. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, Rollups, Count Abstraction, MEV, App Change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. I might uh, challenge you on the, sure. the saying on your shirt of, of quantitative easing or central bank. It's not money printing. Uh, central banks have, have uh, what does it say exactly? Tell us, tell us what it says. It says, it says that central banks print bank reserves, mm -hmm. not money for the private sector. Okay. So I think that that is objectively true that they do print bank reserves and bank reserves are not money for the private sector, but they are money. And I think that quantitative easing, the Fed, which is, you know, I, I felt a lot, had a lot to do with the credit bonanza of 2020. I'm not talking about banks. I'm talking about the securities market because the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. they buy treasuries or agency mortgage-backed securities from banks. And then those banks, how do they, I mean, you worked at a bank, so tell me if this is true, but they said, hey, where's my tr treasury? It's gone. I have this bank reserve. I'm going to buy it from the private sector. So now uh, I'm going to buy it from my clients, my inv investment funds, or not their clients, but you know what I mean. And now those funds, they have a lack of coll collateral. So now they have to go and buy something uh, riskier. And uh, you're, you're very familiar with this theory. What, what, what am I getting wrong? Nothing. You're talking about the portfolio rebalancing effect. Yeah. So you're talking uh, about a theory which I've experienced firsthand uh, running a very large portfolio in a bank during the times where the Federal Reserve and the ECB were running QE at large basis every month, which basically meant that, let's say the European Central Bank was creating bank reserves on their liability side and they were going after assets, namely bonds. That's quantitative easing. So they were taking their reserves and they were buying bonds. Okay, so most bond owners are financial institutions. So banks, pension funds, asset managers. So basically they were taking bonds away from me, Jack, in other words. So what happens is that over time, it's a process. It takes six months, 12 months. 
bank reserves accumulate in the banking system and bonds are taken away from the banking system and from pension funds and from asset managers and from insurances. Only banks, notice, only banks can have bank reserves. You don't have an account at the Fed. Me neither. The pension fund doesn't have an account at the Fed. Okay? So the banks accumulate bank reserves. They have less bonds. And if the pension funds have sold bonds to the Fed, they have financial bank deposits. They don't have real economy money. The pension fund can't buy a computer. Well, they can, but not with their investment portfolio. They can't spend money in the real economy. They can only have more deposits at another bank, which they can choose or not to reuse in other financial assets. But both banks and pension funds and insurances find, and you're right, less bonds and more idle stuff, either bank reserves or financial bank deposits. And so after nine to 12 months, if the Federal Reserve has successfully calmed down markets with quantitative easing, volatility has come down. And that means that bank reserves or financial bank deposits make no money because they reward you with risk-free rates, which in that case are zero or negative in Europe. And you look like an idiot because everything else around you is rallying. And if it's not rallying, there is carry to be made, which means you buy some corporate bonds. And even if the spreads don't compress, even if yields don't come down, you still sit on a, on a yield of maybe 2% while risk-free rates are zero. And that's better. And so over time, this low carry, uh, sorry, this low volatility, and the fact that there are so many bank reserves and idle financial bank deposits can bring companies, uh, banks, and pension funds to be more aggressive and rebalance their portfolio back into credit. Yes, that's the case. Um, does that mean that there is more real economy money out there? No. We have only created financial bank deposits for pension funds. This is not real economy money. And we have created bank reserves. This is not real economy money. But if you, uh, those pension funds buy corporate bonds that they would not have otherwise bought, I'll just make an extreme example of a, you know American cruise line company, Carnival Cruises, uh, and they're able to issue debt at a very low coupon, even though all of their ships are in a warehouse you know, in 2020, uh, that is credit creation that would not have happened, right? That is so correct, it does some, in some way appear in your credit impulse. It is. So that yes, that appears, but that's the decision of the corporate to issue more credit, to lever up basically their balance sheet because rates are lower, because they will find it attractive. The mere action of the pension fund or the bank buying the corporate bond is not creating new money for the private sector. It's the action of levering up the balance sheet that comes from the corporate that increases credit in the system. But it's not the bank buying the credit, the new bond, or the pension fund buying the new bond that increases the money in the system. So in other words, Jack, if... Uh, a corporate would decide to issue bonds at 5%, let's say, before QE, because they want to do it, because they think there is good capex, good investment opportunities. They can easily do that. And that's the levering up. That's the real economy money printing. Whether banks or pension funds would choose to buy that bond with or without QE, that doesn't change the amount of money in the system. What changes the amount of money in the system is the, the corporate levering up is you deciding to get a mortgage. Right, but the corporate wouldn't be able to lever up if yields weren't so low. 
So it, it takes wow. two to tango. Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. Yes. But what I want to say is the action of you taking the mortgage on, that's the credit creation, Jack. The action of the corporate levering up, that's the credit creation. That's the real economy money. The, the, uh, the bank buying the bond, well, the bank can buy the bond through the use of more reserves being created, or they can fund the purchase through the repo market. A bank can decide to fund the purchase in different ways. It doesn't need to have more reserves to buy that bond. They can just go through the repo market and fund a purchase of the bond through the repo market. They don't need necessarily to have more reserves to buy the bond in the first place. But let's, let me put it another way. In Japan, in the 90s, mm -hmm. yeah. the Bank of Japan printed a gazillion of bank reserves between the 90s and 2000s. Okay? So banks had a lot of bank reserves floating around, Jack, like a lot of them. Did that increase the real economy money in circulation? No, it didn't. Actually, real economy money in Japan shrank, shrank at the same time that bank reserves were going through the roof. So the Bank of Japan was doing QE, bank reserves were increasing, and the private sector was saying, I don't care how low borrowing rates are, I am not going to lever up because I was just slaughtered from a real estate deleveraging. And I don't care if borrowing rates are zero, one, or two, I don't want to lever up. So maybe banks could take their reserves and buy existing corporate bonds, right? So it would be like a hot potato. Everybody wants to get out of these bank reserves. Everybody wants to buy an existing amount of credit facilities in the market. So say corporate bonds or other things. Yeah, that, that, in this example, the, the banks are buying the bonds, treasury bonds back from a pension fund. So the, those pension funds have bank deposits, which as you say, you, you can't go to the corner store and buy coffee with... Even though yeah. it's bank deposits, if you're a pension fund, I mean, you'll, you'll get uh, you know, in trouble. <laughs> so, so you need corporate, you need the private sector to explicitly decide to lever up and to get access to credit. And that's the action of real economy money creation. Bank reserves are another channel through which banks can rebalance their portfolio. Pension funds maybe can decide to rebalance their portfolio, but rebalancing their portfolio can happen also if corporates don't issue new bonds, then it just becomes a hot boiling potato that people want to pass around. But guys, real economy money printing happens only in these three conditions. There are no others in the world. Fiscal deficits that are not offset by an increase in the treasury general account. And we can talk about net liquidity or whatever it's called these days on Fintuit if you want. So basically that's the government printing money for the private sector, deciding to cut your taxes, decide to send you check at home, decide to increase the amount of disposable money you have on your bank account, okay? And not or, tax it. Yeah. And not tax it. So it's fiscal deficits. It's, it's not only spending offset by a tax, it's literally fiscal deficits. It's saying, Jack, I'm going to cut your taxes and I'm not going to ask anything back from you. Okay, so you have more money all of a sudden. That's real economy money. You can spend it on anything inflationary you want. So fiscal deficit is one. The yep. fact that Europe ran austerity programs between 2012 and 2020 basically explains most of the underperformance on GDP and inflation that Europe had against the US. The second form, you want to stop me here to ask a question about fiscal deficits? Uh, no, let's go. Let's get to the second second one. Yeah, sure. So fiscal I agree with you on fiscal deficits. I want to get to a point where I disagree with you. <laughs> fiscal deficits not offset by treasury general account increase. So if the government is basically 
uh, doing fiscal deficits or borrowing a lot through the bond market, but just to refill their coffers at the Fed rather than spending the money in the real economy, then it doesn't matter. Then they right. haven't really they have printed to money. spend the money and not tax or borrow. Yeah. Yeah, but they have just deposited the money back at the Fed. They haven't really spent the money. Their general account at the Fed goes up, but the money isn't reaching the okay, real okay, economy. Actually, okay, there is something I disagree with you on, which is if you so fiscal deficit. Uh, if the government borrows money, it's going to take money from the private sector, right? But if no. the Federal Reserve is buying tons of treasuries, then the Federal Reserve doesn't can basically monetize the debt. And I know the Federal Reserve does not buy from the Treasury. The you know JP Morgan buys the treasuries, but then mm -hmm. the Fed buys them from JP Morgan. Uh, no, that's incorrect because when the government actually we have a we have a T account to show here, so. But for people listening on the podcast, try to, to follow me. It's, it's not easy, but we'll make it. We will. The government spends money. So think of the liability side of the government balance sheet. Okay? Think in T-account terms. It's always easier. The government spends money. Liability of the government, net equity. So basically, the government prints the money. It's the issuer of the money, guys. And it says, more money. Here you go. I want to do a deficit spending. The offsetting amount in the private sector is that Jack Farley gets on the asset side more bank deposits. That's the check that the government has sent to Jack. Jack on the liability side gets more equity because Jack doesn't have any debt attached to this new bank account, right, Jack? It's just new money that has been given to you. So your net Assets. worth, yeah. your net worth goes higher. That's on your liability side. Asset side, you have more bank deposits. Follow me now. Let's not talk about bond issuance yet. So remember, the government has spent money, has blown a hole in their balance sheet. They can. They're the issuer of the money. It's the government. Where are they getting that money? From the Treasury General account? No, they're not getting that money, Jack. They decide It's a ledger. So in the ledger, they blow a hole. That's very difficult to accept for many people. But the, the government can decide on a ledger, on the liability side, whether they want the net worth for the private sector to be higher or lower, whether they want to do deficits. Through the Federal Reserve, right? Well, technically, yes. We yeah, can yeah, get yeah. That. That's we that's we that's can point. get there. It's linked, right? I mean, it's a Treasury General account at the Fed, and it's a government item on the liability side. But I didn't want to make it too difficult for people you know, that are trying to follow the steps here. So governments print money, do fiscal deficits, basically, and they inject bank accounts into JECs. Private sector, JECs bank account goes up. Also, Jack's net worth goes up. Good for Jack. Excellent. We like, I, I no complaint so far. Amazing. Jack has more bank accounts. Okay, great. Where are these bank accounts going? They become an li additional liability of the banking system. Bank deposits, right? Right. So, and But the, the government paid that, I assume, by uh, having the Federal Reserve transfer reserves from the TGA to the private banks. Wait, wait a second, wait a second. Okay. Stay with the bank, stay with the bank. Okay. The bank now wears more bank deposits, okay? What's the natural, that's the liability of the bank, okay? What's the natural offset on the asset side of a bank? They have more deposits from Jack. Loans. These deposits go overnight as reserves at the Fed, okay? Good. So a bank now has more bank deposits. It's a jack that has more money, basically speaking, right? And the offsetting item on the asset side is more bank reserves. Now, 
let's go back to the fact that in our system, the government has to issue bonds to fund the fiscal deficits, okay? This is the elephant in the room I haven't talked about mm -hmm. until now. Good. So on the liability side, the government can't just blow a hole in their balance sheet according to our accounting rules. Yeah, they, the ha they have to borrow the money and they all of those reserves, when you say the reserves went up for banks, that came from the government's account with the Federal Reserve, the Treasury General account. So if the government could blow a hole in their balance sheet accounting-wise, the Treasury General account would go negative, but mm -hmm. it can't because we decide that it can't, okay? That's an accounting rule we have imposed. Great. So that means that the government on the liability side needs to find an offsetting item. It can't go negative, right? And that offsetting item is called bond issuance. Great. The government issues bonds. Remember that Jack has more bank deposits. Those bank deposits have ended up at a bank, okay? A bank that has more bank deposits on the asset side will have resulting more bank reserves. The government issues bonds to whom? To primary dealers. What do primary dealers use to buy bonds, Jack? They use reserves. And you're done. So the idea basically behind the fiscal deficits is that even without quantitative easing, the, the government doesn't take resources away from the private sector. When the government does fiscal deficits through a big route of increasing the bank deposits for Jack, it also increases the bank reserves. And these bank reserves are used to purchase the bonds that the government issues to match their funding. We're it increases put its own bank reserves in the Treasury General account, but it doesn't it decrease bank reserves in the system? No, it doesn't. Bank reserves are flat in that case because they are increased by the fact that your amount of deposits goes up so deposits go up, liability goes up, reserves goes up. These reserves are then used to purchase bonds, which means reserves remain flat. If the, if the Fed does quantitative easing, that's amazing for banks because they don't need to use existing reserves to buy bonds. It's the Fed taking away the bonds for them, yeah. which means that's a super powerful combination. And you're right, that combination is really powerful because not only Jack gets more real economy money, and that's his bank account going up, a check that reaches Jack, right? So Jack has more money to spend, but banks don't even use to, need to use the existing reserves to buy bonds. Banks will be then inundated by more reserves, excess reserves that are coming from the quantitative easing and the portfolio rebalancing effect that you discussed before kicks in and compounds potentially the sentiment around, you know, strong markets and capital markets function well, and maybe more corporates want to join the party. Maybe they want to lever up more. It compounds the effect. But real economy money printing is not happening through quantitative easing. It's happening through fiscal deficit. Fiscal deficit increased the amount of bank deposits that Jack Farley has. And that is real economy money. That's inflationary money. That's Jack. Jack has money to spend. It's not a bank with a bank reserve on their balance sheet. This was the first way to print money. This the real economy way. money. Real economy money. Okay, second way is bank lending. Second way is bank lending. What's the third way? Uh, that way is pretty straightforward. Uh, Jack shows up at a bank. He wants a mortgage. And uh, the bank says, okay, um, let's check Jack's account. Does Jack has a job? Yes, the job at Blockworks, solid guy. And they check his, his cash flows. They look good. And they say, okay, um, 
what's the mortgage rate? X, we can still make a good return on equity on this, on this uh, investment, on this lending. Okay, let's do it. So a bank, under what people think is that a bank would go and check how many deposits do I have today? Do I have deposits I can lend to Jack? No, that's not yeah. what a bank does. Other people would think, ah, let me check how many reserves I have so that I can multiply these reserves into money for Jack. And no, because Jack doesn't have a reserve account at the Fed in the first place, so he can't get reserves in his account anyway. What a bank does is it credits Jack account. It literally goes into the ledger and it says new loan on the asset side, new mortgage for Jack, and Jack will be credited this money. Okay, So Jack now has a bunch of money and Jack will buy the house from the seller and the seller will have, instead of his previous house, a lot of bank deposits more. This is the proceeds of the seller selling the house to Jack. Where do bank deposits go? Well, back in the banking system again, right? They're, never, so, they're always in the banking system. Yeah, They are. They never escape. So the entire banking system now has a new asset, which is the mortgage, new credit being created towards Jack, and a new liability which is the new bank deposits that have been created in the process that are now the proceeds of the guy that sold the house to Jack. Question that people often ask me, well, Alf, that's true for the entire banking system. What about the single bank that gave money to Jack? They created a new asset, but if the, if the seller of the house doesn't bank exactly with the same bank, yeah. the deposits aren't going to come back automatically, are they? And that is correct. The deposits aren't going to come back automatically. But banks first lend. They create credit. They create an asset. They wonder about where are the deposits going to come from? Where is the funding going to come from after the fact? There is a big market for finding new funding for banks. Used to be the interbank lending market, which is now dead, effectively. And it's today the secured repo market, mostly. That's when banks can post collateral and get funding and attract funding against that collateral in the repo market. Nowadays, they can post treasuries at the bank term um, funding facility, the new Fed facilities. There are many ways banks can attract funding. And when, when they're posting the collateral, let's say treasuries for funding, what is that funding? Reserves? Or You ask good questions. Um, so let me think. If it's another bank, yes, it's reserves. Yeah. But reserves, um, well, reserves are assets. They're not liabilities for a bank. Mm -hmm. Okay, So the funding itself is the repo. The repo is the funding for the bank. Uh, but if it comes from another bank, then we are exchanging reserves against collateral. But if the bank is doing a repo operation with a pension fund, pension fund doesn't have reserves, right? So a pension fund will transfer bank deposits instead against that collateral which is the treasury. But my point is credit creation coming from bank lending is the activity of banks making loans. It's the activity of banks extending credit to the private sector. That activity doesn't require existing deposits, doesn't rely on how many reserves are in the system. So it's not like the more reserves there are, the more lending will be done. The activity of credit creation is the creation of new money from banks, which happens unilaterally. Banks credit money to Jack and they create new money, new private sector money. So 
thanks for laying that out, Alf. You're on the mechanics. You're absolutely right. And you know, as someone who used to work at a bank, you know this is true. But having uh, spoken with other people who are you know sort of bank insiders and reading a lot of bank reports, I feel like they wouldn't disagree on any of those mechanics. But the way that they talk. They talk as if they need bank deposits. They talk as if banks are leaving the, the funding system. And, you, yes, you know, I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, Alf, you got on a Zoom call with the chief financial officer of a First Republic Bank when yeah. bank deposits were leaving the bank and you said, guys, don't worry. You can just, you don't need bank deposits. And there's the bank and the bank's deposits continued to leave. Well, uh, I don't think they would have been super uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think they would have said, Alf. Well, well, Jack, again, this is why I made the distinction between the entire banking system and the mechanics of how it works for the entire banking system and a single bank. A single bank needs to find, of course, the deposits, right? Once they produce the new asset, you need to match it with new deposits. Now, there are banks that have an incredible pricing power with deposits like JP Morgan. They can always attract new deposits very, very quickly. There are other banks that can't do that. There are banks that run a very concentrated deposit base and you know that doesn't work. And Al, sorry, the, the problem there is once you make a loan, you get the loan and your liability is the deposit, uh, which is the assets of the person to whom you made the loan. If they leave the, the bank and they say transfer their deposits to JP Morgan, First Republic withdrawing deposits going to JP Morgan, the problem there is now you're the person to who you owe money as a bank is now JP Morgan. And they're going right. to say, where's the, where, where's the treasuries? Where's the reserves? That is right. Yeah. So at a single bank level, obviously this can be... Um, the mechanics are not exactly the same. That doesn't mean that bank credit creation is not real economy money printing. So I don't want people to uh, go and look at single operational details at a single bank to try and prove that bank lending is not money printing. Bank lending is real economy money printing at a system level. For a single bank, obviously, especially if the bank isn't able to retain or attract new deposits, that bank will need to look for funding for every new loan and new asset it creates. That's true. So, um, of course, like you see the Federal Reserve now trying to make sure that banks that have credit creation towards the real economy, so like regional banks, but they run very concentrated business models. They have high deposit flight risks that we have seen unfolding, actually do get an alternative way to get funding. This is why these facilities exist, because now you can post a treasury at the BTFP, basically with no market haircut, basically with no haircut of any sort. With a and, negative haircut. Yeah. yeah. And basically, yeah. you can get your funding done. Now, notice funding is pretty expensive over there. It's not cheap because it follows the OIS curve, basically. So Fed funds, in other mm -hmm. words. So it's not cheap as having a deposit from Jack at JP Morgan that pays half a percent or 1%. It's going to cost 5% plus. But you can get your deposit done through the Federal Reserve. So if the Federal Reserve wants, in principle, they can provide facilities for, for which banks can access funding in general. And that is anyway a single bank discussion that doesn't capture the reality that bank lending at a system level is real economy money printing. And when banks decide to make a loan, they create a new asset and they create new deposit for the banking system. That's how real economy money printing works from a fiscal deficit perspective and from a bank lending perspective. And so what's the third type of money printing? Oh yeah, that would be credit through non-banks basically. Securities, uh, so capital markets. Capital yeah. markets, shadow banking, securities. So it's, it's another form of levering up balance sheets 
check. It's another form of credit creation, which doesn't go through bank lending. Um, Europe, for instance, relies a lot on bank lending. The US relies less on bank lending and more on capital markets and more on shadow banking in general. But the trend of um, economies over the last 30 years has been the same wherever you look at. We have had a drop in structural growth, which is the combination of demographics being, well, a headwind actually for many developed markets. So labor force growth has stagnated, even turned negative in many developed markets because people grow older, um, you know, replacement um, rates are not there, demographics were bad. And so, you know, your labor force shrinks over time and productivity has been eh, okay, around 1%, maybe a bit less. So we become a bit more productive year after year, but not a lot, right? So your structural growth rate in some economies was below 1%. And it's not very socially acceptable, right? To grow your economy at half a percent GDP a year. I mean, that doesn't really work. And so we have access credit. We have made sure that credit creation was the lever through which the private sector had more spendable money year after year, and it could therefore generate stronger cyclical growth. And one thing to say there is that many people look at government debt as the only metric for watching how leveraged an economy is. And that's a mistake because I can name you a bunch of very virtuous economies, Australia, China, Canada, uh, Korea, Norway, Switzerland, all of these have very low levels of government debt, very low levels. Why? Well, they use the private sector balance sheet to lever up and to access credit. So credit was ample and available for the private sector, which took it on. And if you sum private sector and public sector leverage amongst all economies in the world, you'll see exactly the same trend. Total credit to the economy as percentage of GDP has grown materially over the last 30 years to make sure we could replace dwindling structural growth with some sort of cyclical growth. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Uh, I want to explore a few narratives, which, you know, are very popular, our audience, and definitely you will be f- familiar with. One, I guess, is that, you know, don't fight the Fed. And that's so what the Fed's doing QE, got to buy stocks. The Fed's doing quantitative tightening. Stocks are super risky. And that played out well for, you know, I guess, the first three quarters of, of last year. But as the Federal Reserve have continued to do quantitative tightening, we're in a, a, a pretty rip-roaring uh, equity market right now. Uh, stocks have been outperforming bonds by by considerable degree during quantitative tightening. Uh, how do do you think that challenges the commonly held belief that you know high interest and high rates as well that high interest rates and quantitative tightening are bad for stocks and low interest rates and QE are good for stocks? What I always say is, okay, in two thousand and six, 
Do you remember where Fed funds were, Jack? I don't remember, but I think they were 5.25%, maybe. Bravo, Jack. So they were over 5%, and yeah, the yeah. Fed stopped and kept Fed funds at over 5% for 18 months. Stock markets did very well in 2006 and in the first half of 2007. 525% Fed funds. In 1999 and 2000, in the midst of the most acute dot-com uh, bubble, Fed funds weren't zero, Jack. They were much higher than that. And if you look at measure of risk premia, so let's say forward earnings yield minus 10-year interest rates, something yep. like that. So the excess earnings yield you can yield in stock markets versus your risk-free rate. In 1999 and 2000, they were negative. I repeat, negative. So in order to participate into the bubble, people were happy to pay negative risk premia. Or to you were getting all, all total, all earnings yield of the S&P 500 was less than what you'd make on bonds. On bonds, correct. Yet, people were chasing that. So... This very simple identity people want to uh, draw in markets between net liquidity. Uh, for people listening to me, I'm, I'm going with air, uh, air quotes here because we need to talk about that for a second. One-on-one -on -one relationships where people want to use one variable, one and only one, to estimate future stock market returns are, can I say bullshit on forward guidance? Yes, sure, I can. Sure, do, do it. Um, you just did. So, Jack, look, the... If it was that easy, then this wouldn't pay so well as a job and as a sector and as a market. You cannot imagine you can forecast future stock market returns with one and one single variable, be it real rates, be it net liquidity, be it whatever you want it to be. It's much more complex than that. So, so the Fed's balance sheet is literally one variable. Real rates are, I guess, two variables, where rates are, and then forward inflation expectations. And then net liquidity does, I mean, depending on the model, combines a lot of different stuff. Yeah, look, okay, let's talk about this. First of all, in most cases, net liquidity is one single item that you, listener, can go and check for free on the FRED website. You just type bank reserves. Okay, so net liquidity is always pictured as the Fed balance sheet minus RRP minus TGA uh, well, I'm only left with bank reserves as the only item left on the Fed balance sheet. So bank reserves are basically used as net liquidity proxy to try and see where the stock market will be going. Well, I'm all about data and I hope people know that I don't have a problem admitting when I'm wrong, like I did at the beginning of the interview about my recession call. I, drew, I went with a very simple linear regression Jack, of the changes in bank reserves, okay, let's say the net liquidity proxy, against changes in the S&P 500. I applied also lags. So I said, maybe it takes time until the change in bank reserves, the change in liquidity affects the stock market. So I tried different lags, three months, six months, 12 months, different changes, year-on-year uh, -year changes, six months changes, whatever you want. And I went back 20 years. The R-square, so the variability in returns of the S&P 500 explained by the changes in bank reserves is how much in percentage, Jack? Tell me. I don't know. You tell me. 3%. 3% of the entire S&P 500 returns 
which is 100% of the returns, only 3% of the S&P 500 returns are explained by changes in bank reserves. If I look at the post-massive QE period of 2020-2021, if I only focus on that, then we are going up to 9 or 10%. So these amazing visual correlations that you see floating around are explaining at best between 3 and 10% of the variability of returns of the S&P 500. In other words, they are a factor, but alone, they're completely useless. So you're being pretty much as rigorous as possible when evaluating that analysis, which, which I appreciate. Number one, you're looking at the changes, the correlation sure. between the changes, not the correlation between the levels. No. And number two is um, you're, you're looking at uh, R squared and trying to explain explain how you know not not just the correlation but how much they can actually be explained so a multivariable sort of regression i, I imagine uh and the the so that's pretty much as close as you can get on the, the rigorous um on the other total other side of the spectrum there's just like putting up two lines and associating them with each other that's not at all yes. rigorous Look, but, but let me ask you out Al, so so you know we can put up a chart of the credit impulse and s&p 540 earnings and you know they they look very Sure. But when you are as rigorous with your credit impulse as you are with net liquidity, what do you find? So if I do the same on the credit impulse, then I will find with earnings, with changes in earnings. So credit impulse is a rate of change metric against changes in earnings with the lag. Then I will apply basically the same methodology I did on the other end. I would find something around 15, 18, 20%. Okay, so R square numbers that are low, uh, but you know that using that variable, you can explain about 20% of the changes in earnings. With the S&P 500, it would be like maybe 15% or so, mm -hmm. something along these lines, okay? But this goes to show that if you're running macro models and trying to do a systematic macro investment approach, you can't look at one variable, Jack. I mean, this is a complex world where you need to look, keep an eye out for a lot of things out there. The reason why changes in bank reserves, changes in liquidity, do not correlate really well and predict well the variability of changes in the S&P 500 returns. It's very simple. Banks do not buy stocks with their bank reserves. It's very simple. You can print as many bank reserves as you want. You can do as much QE as you want. Bank reserves end up in the treasury departments at a bank, right? Banks don't have appetite or mandate to buy equities in their high quality liquid books. In their high quality liquid books, they will buy treasuries, they will buy corporate bonds, they will buy maybe some mortgage-backed securities. Oh, definitely mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, oh, well, we have seen some banks have gone nuts. They will buy some mortgage-backed securities in general, a prudent bank. Equities are in some jurisdiction, not even an HQLA asset. So they don't qualify for banks as an asset they can buy in their liquid buffer in the first place. In some jurisdiction, they do, but only under extremely rigorous assumption and only for a super small percentage of their liquidity buffer. So basically, Jack, banks don't use reserves to buy stocks. Very simple. Definitely not. But, but yeah, the, there's a, a portfolio rebalancing, and that has, I think, on the margin effect, but it's definitely not so strong that you can say, oh my God, QT. Stocks are going down. I mean, clearly that argument has been proven wrong. As with rates, I mean, rates are at 5%. The very, um, you know, I'm an evaluation oriented person. And with interest rates at zero, you can justify uh, pretty much any multiple on the S&P 500. <laughs> with interest rates at 5%, 
you know, a, a valuation of a PE ratio of 25 doesn't really make a whole, whole lot of sense. If, and uh, look, you know, just the other PE of a treasury bond yielding 5% is 20. You're totally right. And uh, although, please bear in, in mind again that with the Fed funds at 5% in 2000, in 1999, 2000, almost 6%, if I, if I remember, you had PEs that implied an earnings yield below 6%. So it's not, again, you can never draw an analogy. For the entire the stock market, let alone individual stocks that were you know, ridiculously over, overvalued. Yeah, that is correct. Um, so the other thing yeah. I wanted to say about QT and balance sheets is the other thing I always hear now is, okay, so assume that this, this inflationary trend continues. We have seen the June CPI come in. It was pretty much disinflationary. So the core services... Uh, X housing subcomponent, which Powell really cares about, indicates the stickier inflationary trends, the ones that are closer to the slack in the labor market and in the economy, printed at 1.4%. I repeat, 1.4% on a three-month annualized yeah. basis. So the recent trend is really weak in the most sticky part of the inflationary basket. So let's assume that continues for a bit, Jack. Right, And let's assume that you know, growth, as I said at the beginning of the interview, according to the NBER, seven metrics is about 1%, right? When you get a 1% annualized level of growth, let's say that we keep there. We don't go even in a recession. We just keep this soft patch of growth, like in 2019 or in 2016, for example, Jack. And then you have the momentum of inflation clearly down. So we're looking at, you know, a pretty much Goldilocks environment where you have disinflation, where you have growth, which is low, but not recessionary. What are the assets that do best in these environments? Stocks. Well, generally, you have growth stocks. Growth stocks are basically bonds with an equity beta on it. They do amazing because you have the disinflationary trend, you have the growth that is low and predictable. The Fed becomes predictable at that point. And you have an equity beta on top of it that also does relatively well. So growth stocks do well. Bonds also should do well in that environment because if you remember in 2019 or in 2016, of course, when you have this inflation and you have growth pretty weak, you are going to have bonds performing relatively well. But people ask me like, Alf, but the Fed is running QT, $95 billion a month, dude. I mean, uh, these guys are going to have to issue bonds as well. And so uh, what's up with these bonds? I mean, are you sure that QT doesn't derail bond performance maybe even well, well, and also you, you said that disinflation the really you know significant disinflation since october uh that should be good for bonds but bonds have been kind of flat-ish for the year uh and obviously 2022 was a huge bear market for, for yeah. bonds so is, is the reason you think bonds haven't performed even in a disinflation just because growth has uh performed to the upside i think it's growth as surprised to the upside as in we entered the year with expectations that non-farm payroll would print flat in a few months, Jack. I mean, economist consensus for non-farm payrolls in December for April, May this year was that non-farm payrolls would be 100K, 90K. They have been much stronger than that, right? So you have growth surprising on the upside. Most importantly, you had the Fed, which really fought hard and successfully so in repricing away the market from this idea they would cut very soon. And so a lot was baked in at the beginning of the year in bonds, and that has been obviously baked off now, right? But 
in periods where in 2016 and 2019, you had these inflationary trends and growth more or less where it is today, okay, under the NBER definition, real rates back then, 10-year real interest rates were at 0%. Okay, so real rates back then were at 0% and the level of growth was roughly the same as today. Today, with a 1% NBR annualized level of growth, 10-year real rates are 1.65%. So inflation expectations have come in pretty aggressively. Bond yields remain high because real yields are increasing over time. Because the Fed is really making sure to pass through this tighter monetary policy through time, through the economy. They really want to make sure that they don't lose an early enough. And the bond market is responding because the economy isn't showing any recessionary sign yet. So the combination has basically made sure that bonds did flattish, but stocks did much better because the re-rating of growth has really helped the stock market to perform and multiple expansions and so on and so forth. If I look at the second half of the year, what I see is that the longer we keep this policy tight and we enter the lags time between 13 and 21 months, which historically have proven to be the periods in which it really hits the economy harder, right, with the lag, we enter this period where there is a ton of optimism in equity markets, 2024 earnings per share estimate are plus 11%, Jack. Wow, it's a solid earnings per share growth estimate. Right when the lags of the monetary policy should kick in historically more aggressively, investors are expecting earnings per share to grow double digits next year. There is a lot of confidence right now that things are rosy and doing well, and we're keeping real yields very, very high, measured against the level of growth as we speak. In that environment, I think that bonds are something to consider in your portfolio to have, because they not only can do okay in a disinflationary trend, like in 2016 or 2019, but they protect against the tail risk that a credit event happens, something that now all of a sudden nobody thinks it's possible anymore. If I look at call options in the bond market, Jack, Many hedge fund clients of mine, unfortunately, and not clients as well, have been blown up in March because the idea was it's a disinflationary soft landing. The Fed is not going to cut. It's no recession. It's fine. You know, it's just a soft landing. That was the narrative. So people looked for carry and they sold optionality. They sold calls to monetize these premiums. And then the banking crisis arrived and they were blown up. Knew some people as well, uh, not clients, but I, I knew them who had also, you know, very tough day that Friday, uh, I think I think March 10th. But the bond market has sold off by as much as it rallied in early March. That is so correct. So if they had continued to be short those options, they actually would have been fine. That is true. So the problem with being short optionality, obviously, is that you're right 90% of the times and the 10% you're wrong, you will be blown out of the water, right? That's the problem with shorting optionality. Right now, the reason why I mentioned this optionality is if I look at the cost of these calls, they are now basically as cheap as the day before the banking crisis unfolded. So if you want to buy optionality for Fed cuts somewhere in late 2024 that are consistent with a credit event or a recession, something that protects your PL against one of these events, you can now buy, you can now buy these calls as cheap as the day before the banking crisis. This goes to show the confidence that people have rebuilt in the fact that there will, no, there will, you know, there will not be a credit event. There will not be a recession. 
it's all fine, it's all dandy. And you know, against this backdrop, when you invest, you're always investing against market pricing, market consensus. You're not investing on a blank canvas, you're buying assets that are that have a certain valuation. And I think as we speak, given the consensus and given where we are in the cycle, it's interesting to look at optionality that protects your PL as well against a credit event or a recession. Yeah, I mean, definitely so many of the cuts have been priced out, not all of them, but a lot of the cuts have been priced out. So it it is a better trade in that you're just getting better pricing uh, for, for 2024. So Alpha, if I were to sort of pin you to a prediction, when do you think, you know, if, if we have a recession, when do you, for the, let's the US, let's say, when do you think it will be? And then also, uh, wh- when do you think, uh, what is an appropriate time horizon where you think bonds will outperform stocks? Uh, over the next year, or will it take longer than that? <laughs> so you are asking me a question, which is uh, great for a guy that gets interviewed, because I can throw up, uh, I don't know, like three dates, and then say that I, I picked the right one, and then you yeah. will forget about it. And then if I the pick other two, it, yeah, I, will yeah. be, I will be the hero. Um, so look, I've been already wrong with the timing um, this year. So I find it hard to pinpoint uh, the lags are now kicking in, so I think it's reasonable to put somewhere in the middle between the 13 and the 21 months of hitting uh, monetary policy lags historically. So if that has to be 17 months, which means June plus 17, you make the number. So it's about uh, very early next year, somewhere like uh, end of this year, very early next year would be right in line with the average lag of monetary policy tightening okay just right in line it will be early next year end of this year can it take 19 months can it take 15 can we get a big credit event in the meantime yes of course we can and definitely there is no way of knowing it but with an horizon of six to 12 months let's say um i think that you should get there and also that means that when people ask me bonds over stocks it's always a tough question because if you look at history there have not been many periods check when bonds overperformed equities for two reasons. Equities have a higher beta than bonds, which means that in normal periods, the economy grows and the asset with the higher beta to economic growth is equities. So it's normal for equities. And their return is uncapped, whereas bonds are, it's fixed, it's called fixed income for a reason. Very good. So for bonds to outperform equities, it is very rare that something like that happens. So first of all, on a volatility adjusted basis, so in a risk parity portfolio, what you do is you scale or either down the equity component or up the bond component so that the volatility contribution of bonds and equities to your portfolio is roughly the same, okay? So volatility adjusted, I would expect that bonds can have a window to outperform equities over the next like, six months. I think that's possible. Six months, okay. Uh, so, yeah. so you're, okay, that, yeah, because, and because uh, assets are forward-looking, so before the recession of... of- so if we are going yeah. into the NBR kind of recessionary territory, then that will happen roughly at the beginning of next year. Uh, but obviously markets will smell that that's happening a bit earlier than that, right? Because we'll get data that confirms that that is the uh, the situation. And also there is obviously always a credit event or something on the horizon that can help that call in a convex way. This call in the first six months of the year, also volatility adjusted, didn't work. So even if you adjust the vol of equities down to the vol of bonds, equities did much better. I think where we stand today with the set of information we have, there is a chance that the opposite happens and bonds have a window to do 
volatility adjusted better than equities over the next six months. We'll leave it there. Al, thanks so much for coming on. People obviously know you on Twitter at MacroAlf, but if they want more than just you on Twitter, tell us what you're doing about the Macro Compass and where they can find you. So Jack, uh, the Macro Compass is a uh, macro strategy firm. So it's not only about pontificating on macro, but it's also about trade idea, investment portfolios, and so on and so forth. Now, if you're an institutional investor, I also have a dedicated service with a live Bloomberg chat. So I cover macro and markets live on Bloomberg directly through a macro chat and a dedicated service. If people are interested, just send me an IB on Bloomberg. You can see the name there, Alfonso Peccatiello. Sounds very Italian, it is. If you're not an institutional investor, that works too. All the products for retail and individual investors are on themacrocompass.com. Thanks again for coming on, Alf, and thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.